listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Redfield. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest on the podcast today is actor Jeffrey Combs. I've known Jeffrey and worked with Jeffrey since 2010, when I was fortunate enough, very lucky, to um, produce the one-man play Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe in Baltimore for uh, Baltimore audiences. I had met um, and worked with the late director Stuart Gordon uh, in late 2009. It was their desire to uh, perform Nevermore in Baltimore. And uh, Stuart and I began a long process of uh, communication and talking on the phone uh, in how to get Nevermore to Baltimore. And uh, finally, we managed to do it uh, for Poe's birthday in January of 2010. That's when I really met Jeffrey, and um, I had met him socially prior to that uh, over the years, but uh, that is the first time that I was really able to work with him and meet and get to know him. And um, I'm very glad that a very long and uh, fruitful friendship uh, has come about since then. Halloween of 2014, there was a performance of Nevermore in Boston that I recorded. And uh, last year, uh, Halloween of 2020, we turned that recording into an audio book of Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe, which is available now. And uh, it's been a wonderful journey since then. And um, so we'll talk, I'm sure, a lot about Nevermore, Edgar Allan Poe, Reanimator, Star Trek, television, movies. And I'm sure that because we're both actors that a lot of the talk and chat will be very actor-centric. So off to the races we go. This conversation was recorded in April of 2021. Enjoy. So what is the most traumatic, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on stage? Either a wardrobe malfunction, it's a contact sport, a stage injury, but what comes to mind? Well, uh, the first thing that came to mind was, um, you know, we've all had, uh, stuck on stage when another actor has forgotten to make their entrance. Mm. That's, that's always a joy. Uh, I had a, there's an old actor who's long passed away. He's a character stage actor and did some films. It was G wood. And I shared a dressing room with him a couple of times and I, I scared him one Day and he said, "You gave me a lurgy." He said, <laughs> "A lurgy. What is what is a lurgy?" And he said, "It's a sudden rush of shit to the heart." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> all actors have experienced lurgies on stage. It's not like film and television where you can go cut, right? Yeah. And let's do another. No, you're in it, and it's it's uh, all in. 
Well, now, see, I have to... Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm going to be using that term because, yeah, I've had my share, but Lurgy, that's pretty damn good. We've all had Lurgy. The worst thing that ever happened to me on stage, I was doing a production of Twelfth Night in Portland, Oregon, uh, the summer kind of rep, two shows in rotation. And um, I was playing Sir Andrew Agu-Cheek, Mm. And uh, and I was the scene where I'm leaving. I've had enough, and I'm leaving. And I and uh, I, I bring in a big chest, and because right. uh, I'm leaving, and I'm packed, and I'm all, I'm gone. And and they at some point another actor would push the um, the chest towards me. And I would do sort of a pratfall over the chest and uh, ha, ha, ha. And then I would grab the chest and leave in the scene. Well, uh, Portland can rain. And this was an outdoor production on grass. Oh, man. And they said, oh, the performance tonight, uh, our contingency is raining, so we're moving to the inside theater. Okay, so now it's an indoor production. That's fine. We adapt. We go in. Who doesn't adapt is the actor who pushes the chest, which <laughs> is which is one sort of force when you're on ground. It's a completely another force when you're on wood, smooth wood. Uh, that son of a bitch. That chest flew at me like a like a <laughs> like a bobsled, mm. and just slammed into my toe and my shin. Mm. It took me out, took me uh, down, and uh, flash of pain, white lightning pain, and uh, I managed to still fall. Well, I didn't. I didn't do the fall. I did fall. It wasn't a stunt. And I, more so than I ever did, the audience just loved it. Loved it. (laughs) Big, big applause. Keep it. Keep it in the show. It works. (laughs) And I'm backstage in a frozen position, doubled over, grabbing my foot and not moving. Just, just stuck in abject pain for a long time and um, got through the show on adrenaline and then went to the emergency room and yeah, your toast broken. Oh man. Mm. Uh, That's, that's a pretty, that's that's top of the list. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty, that was pretty awful. And then, so now I'm hobbling now for the rest of the summer, I'm sort of, what people don't realize when you broke a freak or break a toe, it affects your entire alignment. Now for yeah. months, I am walking on the side of my foot to protect my toe, my big toe. Uh, yeah, it just has ramifications for a long time. Were you, were uh, you so doing other, that, were you, yeah. Were you doing other things in rep that summer? Did it, uh, cause. 
Or was it just Twelfth Night? No, we would Twelfth Night and um, Tartuffe. Ah. Uh, No, no, I was on my feet, you know? When you're doing period stuff like that, you can't turn into Lionel Barrymore and just all of a sudden your character (laughs) in a a wheelchair or behind your desk. You can't. can't. Right. So... No, you hob- I hobbled through. I hobbled now, outdoor theater outdoor theater has never been my favorite either. I uh, my uh, my twelfth night, I played Sebastian, and we had to do an outdoor because they got some of the production money from the city, and they they that was part of the requirement. You got to do two days, and then I did a uh, Groomio in Taming of the Shrew, and it was an outdoor performance, and I was waiting for a cue. And I don't, I don't bite my fingernails, but I, I don't know why my fingers were in my mouth, waiting, listening, watching, and I chipped a lower tooth, a broke a tooth. Anyway, so you, when did the, when did the, the whole acting bug bite you? Was that early? Was it in high school? Was your family supportive? Uh, well. I'm always, you know, always curious about of, where the needle hits the record with an actor. Right. That's a good way of putting it. I, I, you know, in, in a weird sort of way, it kind of found me. I'd always been fascinated with, with film and television. I had an absolute, up in a small town, I had no real common, often uh, interaction with live theater at all. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, we took a field trip over to uh, the next town over, slightly bigger, with a, with a two-year college, and to see, um, to see a play. Hmm. My first, that was my first live uh, performance experience and it was dazzling to me it was emperor's new clothes uh, I, you know it wasn't a wasn't a massively opulent production but the magic of live theater really uh really hit me right between the eyes that this was a world mm. this was a world um Little did I know that uh, right out of high school, I went to that college and I went to that theater program, and it is the cornerstone of everything that happened to me since, Mm. because it was a spectacular uh, plant, uh, artistic, uh, run by a visionary man who just... uh, a kaleidoscope of different styles and really, really great artists and residents coming in and high, high level of production values on all the productions. It was uh, really what shaped me. But that sixth grade experience, uh, the next time it kind of raised its head was I took a drama class in junior high, junior, junior year of high school. Hmm. For an easy A, for an easy A, and girls, 
That's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's an elective. I don't have to do anything. There can't be much homework. And then, hey, okay, girls are going to be in there. So uh, out of laziness, I suppose, or maybe subliminally interest, but not overt. And um, yeah. the first play came along, and I did not audition for the play. Huh. Not interested. Um, my drama teacher, a couple of days later said, Jeff, I want you to wait after class. Uh, oh, what did I do? I don't even know what I did, but dang it. And he basically said, we've cast the show. Someone's dropped out and I want you to take the part. And I was just adamant, was adamant, not interested. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. If I have wanted to do that, I would have. Or audition. No, what are you doing? And a good friend of mine who was playing the lead, uh, it was kind of a pincer move. They were both like, come on, yeah. And, I, and just to shut them up, I said, fine. And I remember walking home, beating myself up, regretting that I said yes. Oh, Opening night, yeah. I said my first line. And I got a huge laugh. <laughs> and I think that's when the dopamine hit my brain. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. That's that is when the needle. Uh, it, there was such a uh, rush of validation, I should say, uh, that uh, that was sort of a real turning point. Oh my God, mm-hmm. I like this. Yeah. Uh, so you, and I never felt like I was, and this was sort of a venue that they didn't dare go into and had no flag stuck in the ground <laughs> claiming mm-hmm. it. And it, was un- and it was controlled. You know, Johnny Carson was always socially awkward, but he felt very controlled on stage. It was almost like this is where I'm full myself and not mm. full of myself. I, I understand myself in this. I'm comfortable here. I can control this. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of, kind of, that resonates with me. I know what he means. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so but, uh, you're, you're, you're training, you're from California. Your training is, um, uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, where did you train uh, in college? In a, in a small town on the central coast called Santa Maria. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a, we called it a junior college, a, a, a two-year college with an incredible theater department because of the man who ran it. Uh, he managed to get money from the city to build a kind of a replica of the Guthrie. Ah, wow. Years before I went there. And and he would bring in really top-notch people from all over the country in the summer and a rep of six shows in the summer. This was a this was a creative stew. It mm. very just musicals to Brecht to Shakespeare to Pinter, 
it was yeah. cornucopia variety. And um, I wouldn't say that I had a lot of um, in-class kind of training, I, although there was an acting class and certainly I took movement classes, but it was uh, rehearsal in the morning, uh, rehearsal in the afternoon performance at night. I um, was wall to wall. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wall to wall I was. You, yeah. You can't get better training than okay. that. I've, I've always felt that the audience teaches you everything, and to be able to do it, that's 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 what we need to do. Yeah. Well, it also. Uh, I was surrounded by. I call them pace setters. Oh, if I want to actually do this, it has to be approached by this good example here and that one over there. Oh, that's how you do it. That's the kind of commitment I see. Hmm. I see. This is, this is not something to do uh, for kick. It is a craft that you take as seriously as if you were pursuing ballet. Yeah. Uh, kind of discipline and focus uh, daily. And, um, of course, I've lost all that. I'm the laziest shit now. But, <laughs> but, the, but the point is, is that uh, I was given really great examples all around at a, at a pivotal sort of age where those kinds of Ideals are, are implanted. And, um, but I did know that after three years of that, that I probably needed to counterpoint this with breaking the engine down, of tearing the car apart, and taking movement mm. classes, voice classes. And so I auditioned for a number of training programs, and I got accepted to a training program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so I moved up there, and it only, I, I loved my time up there, but it also made me really aware of what a jewel where I was, because they were, it was more academia, it was much more of a mixed bag in mm-hmm. terms of uh, quality. And so I've been spoiled without really knowing it. And so, anyway, uh, but I went through that program. And, you know, when you go into an actor training program, you kind of, you know, the pieces are all over the place. The engine's not running. You're examining things. You're self-conscious about your choices. You're not, instinct goes away and it's more about how things more techniques and stuff. So, you know, you get through it, that it, and then you... Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny, you made a crack about uh, being lazy uh, nowadays. Yeah. And it's funny, <clears throat> I, the first thing that popped into my mind is that after a... I think that after acting for a very long time in theater and film we actors have learned so much that we begin to forget. And it isn't exactly laziness. It is that 
mechanisms are in place, things are in place. Yeah, the material is new, the moment is new, you're on stage or you're in a film, but we've now, we've been doing this. For, we know what we're doing, <laughs> I think. Um, you know what so, we're doing? So maybe, have to, it's not exactly being lazy, but I know what you mean. We know how to yeah, solve problems. Yeah, we know problems. how to solve on the fly, I've seen this before, and we're confident enough to like, uh, you know, when you do a stage play, it's kind of like, you know, when do I move? Why do I move? Why would I cross down there? What's the motivation for doing that? And and after a while, you just find like, fuck it, I'm going to walk down there. It feels like this is what I would do it. Um, and blocking sort of comes instinctually. You don't even think about it anymore. A lot of young people are like, I don't know what, where to go, what to do and when. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, well, thank God we lose, jumping we lose a certain, I'm sorry, I yeah, got go you ahead. off. Well, we lose a no, certain a amount of self-consciousness, I think. You know, because I, I leap immediately to new actors and I don't know what to do with my hands. And the assignment in the classroom is you put your remember hands in your pocket. Lines. How do you? <laughs> and yeah, and, put and your that's hands in your pocket. Yeah. Right. Um, how did you feel? How do you remember what your was it? Was it a smooth, easy transition into the professional world? Because then you did a lot of uh, theater. Um, did it? Did it just yep. sort of continue to move in a good place? Because because you were working, you had mentioned Guthrie, but then you 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 were working around the country and you were working up and down California. Yeah, yeah, yes. I am. Even before um, we had graduated, my class at University of Washington, we all took a trip down to San Francisco to audition for various. Um, regional theaters to maybe get mm -hmm. some employment right out of school kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and, and, uh, one of them was the old globe in San Diego. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and, um, I thought I'm not the one that they're going to pick. I don't think that I am the strongest, um, Shakespearean actor, let's say of my, of mm -hmm. my class. Uh, so, but I did it and <laughs> I was the one that they said, would you, would you come and join us this summer? Which was oh, sort of, yeah. I was sort of flabbergasted at that. Um, yeah. and so even before I graduated, I actually left college a little early. I still got my diploma. They allowed me to finish my courses, uh, in absentia and everything. Maybe oh, it was like cool. three weeks early. Uh, and my classmates hated me, you know, <laughs> fuck you. Well, he's, yeah, you know, he's working. <laughs> he's working right out of the gate. A bastard. Yeah. I was very fortunate. And, um, and I was very fortunate with casting and, and, a, and a wonderful, um, you know, you just never know because I got, I, I got asked to join the company. I said, yes. And then about two weeks later, they called me and said, um, the globe burned down. Mm. 
It's like, what? The theater burned down. It was arsoned. Mm. I went, <laughs> well, okay. okay, well, I guess I'm out of a job. There you go. And they said, however, we're going to build an outdoor space, and we're still going to go forward. Uh-huh. When I arrived this- in San Diego, the, the old globe was, it was really a charred cement foundation and nothing else, and they were already right. building the outdoor and I'm trying to remember so, when this was. Um, is this about 1988. Oh, okay. 19. The old globe burned down. Right. Yep. And um, but out of those ashes rose uh, an outdoor space, and uh, eventually in the next. Few, three, four years, the globe was was rebuilt, bigger and better than it ever was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, Maybe that's why the '80s and the reopening. That's that's why that sticks in my head. Yeah, right. What, the um, you had you said you we were chatting once a while back, and you had said something that um, we were talking about your your film work, and um, you said that uh, in your early theater work you did a lot of comedies and you were looked upon as a, a comic actor in some ways absolutely um, comedy actor very physical yeah very agile quick athletically moving wiry speedball and and more light 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 roles um yeah i, I was always sort of um not anymore, but I was sort of boyish. <laughs> uh, I did not look, I didn't look my age. Let's put it that way. Uh, I looked younger than I was. Yeah. And so I don't think people, and, and I was a little more energetic than people that are maybe more laid back. So it was a natural thing of like, you do the, uh, the funny stuff. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, when did so, you yeah, decide yeah. to? Uh, when did when did you decide to um, settle down and move to and find work in California and move into film work or TV work and start auditioning? Well, I was again very fortunate. I was in my second. Um, it was in my second summer at the Old Globe. They asked me to come back the second summer. I, and I was thrilled about that. And the summer was almost over. I remember it was on my birthday. And I had ah. just finished a performance of The Comedy of Errors. Okay. Which was a, which was a huge success at the Globe that summer. Um, and uh, after the show... Um, a woman came up to me as I came out of the dressing room and she said, I'm an, I, I'm a talent agent. And what are you doing after this? I have an office in New York and I have one in LA. Mm. It was really pretty that cut and dry. Wow. I, I had never, um, I'd never 
heard of her before, but you know, it she was pretty respected as an independent uh, uh, agent, and was until she passed away some years later. So, yeah, uh, you know, this was a gift on my birthday. Oh my yeah, God. Which is, yeah, which is September. Yeah, right? Is that, right? September 9th. And it was like, wow. you know, is this a joke? Is this a joke? Um, a gift, yeah. But it wasn't. But it wasn't. And, uh, and so I opted for L.A. Yeah. And, okay. uh, and so I moved to L.A., in the enviable position of having an agent in place. Uh, and then I hit the wall and then I hit the wall because any kind of theater momentum that I had, uh, nobody in LA cares about this. Right. And particularly Who not you, then or now, but and, yeah, yeah. You've done, you haven't done anything, you know, as far as they're concerned, done? you haven't, had you done, uh, before the move to LA, had you done any independent film or co- local commercials? Had you done an- any taste of any kind of that or, or student films or anything? No. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. No. Nothing like that. Nothing that I uh, was not in Seattle, certainly not in Santa Maria. There's, you know, nowadays everybody has a camera and can make movies, but in those days, that's the, that's a much higher bar to be able to no. Yeah. The answer is no. So it was a real sort of in your face kind of learning curve. I think my first couple of auditions or maybe even more than the first couple, it was like, okay, that's great. Can you do it again? Only do less. <laughs> because, you know, because I'm trying to hit the back, back row and um, yeah. they're really not interested in that at all. Don't do that. Um, in any event, there were no real opportunities, and it, and it got depressing for me. I was quite restless, mm. uh, not knowing. I was very used to like being busy, and all of a sudden, I really didn't know how to uh, fill my days. Um, and I kind of would fixate on: is the phone going to ring, and uh, is it my agent? I hope so. Uh, and the, the very fact of Los Angeles geography doesn't help that feeling of aloneness if you're not busy. No, uh, it's hard. No, it's, I am, yeah, it's hard. It's very competitive. There's just everywhere you go. If somebody is an actor, uh, everybody, you know, you know, and it's very competitive. And so it just becomes a numbers game, you know? And, um, you know, having said this, I, I got a few little day gigs here and there, one little bad little horror movie to just see how seedy that world was for a minute or two, uh, <laughs> at least that particular set. It was like, oh, my God, what is, this is not theater, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, three years. Let's jump ahead three years later. Uh, and through all of this, I been still going back and doing theater. I would like just have nothing going on and then oper- theater opportunities would come along and my agent wouldn't want me to go and do them. Yeah. Well, you, you need yeah. to be remain available. For what? 
uh, <laughs> for an audition that I, this is something where I can keep my muscles toned, but you want me to atrophy spiritually too. So, um, I would survive by continuing to do a play, but usually in more local regional theaters, uh, South coast sure. rep was nearby drive down there. Uh, the taper, you could work at the, at the taper. Our taper and, forum, um, sure. Our taper forum. And so I finally got, this is a, this is really, this is really true. It happened and it's Hollywood all over the place. I finally, I was doing the lead in Playboy of the Western World at South Coast. And it was a open. fine Irish play. Yeah. Oh, it's a fine. It's a wonderful role. It was grand production, and I was just so great. And I got to the theater early on opening night because of traffic, but also just prep. Mm. And uh, the stage manager comes to me with a letter, and she said, "This came for you, Jeff, to the theater." I'm not living down there. I'm commuting. And it's mm-hmm. a letter on really nice paper, parchment paper, from my agent. And I went, oh, isn't that nice? The opening night, they're sending me a, you know, have a great opening letter. This is great. Break away. Open it up. Yeah. And we, uh, it, we regret to inform you that we're dropping Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, uh, whoa, wait a minute. I'm about to open a, so yeah, there were no pay, there were no cell phones then, or if they were, they were about the size of like a, you know, a microwave. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I went to a payphone and I called her and she said, listen, I have a new partner. We have to, you know, he's, he's become a full partner. He was just an agent here. We went through our list. And this guy would, would never even make eye contact with me at any time, whenever I would like desperately go visit the office, just to say hi, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, you, you want ha- you only you want half an agency working for you was a question. It was like, well, if it's you, yeah, but clearly you don't. So it was pretty devastating, mm. to say the least, to be rejected like that. However, that play uh, got grand reviews, and we won nine LA Drama Critics Awards that year. Wow. Uh, I put together um, a packet and sent to 10 agencies uh, with the reviews and my resume, and uh, three or four replied. I chose one, and and moving on. But that was an abject lesson. In the face of success can be utter defeat and humiliation all in one night. 
and if that isn't, as you say, so Hollywood, and if that isn't the cliche of, well, one door closes, another door opens. Uh, and I, I can't even imagine that kind of news on... I, on an opening night. Opening night. <laughs> and thank you, but no and thank you. I say, I go, why did they mail it to the theater? They knew that I wasn't living down there. Yeah. They have my home address. How do they even have the? I think it was just a uh, an aide who just said, "Oh, he's working right now down at that theater, and that's probably where he's at." So, I, you know, it's just probably yeah. a fluky sort of decision. However, synchronicity of it that it was that it actually arrived on opening night, not the day before, not the day after, but. Yeah. Eh, I didn't let it throw me, though, okay? Uh, I, it didn't affect my performance. If anything, it uh, it bolstered me to steely-eyed you Well, it made you fierce. You had to. You, you have to do the work. I'm doing it defiantly now. You know, I'll show mm. you. Um, anyway... Uh, Let's, I, let's I, jump I never, yeah. No, yeah, I cut you off. You're, you just said I never what? No, I just, I, I, you know, I never really ever, things work out for a reason, I want to say, and I, and I held a certain resentment to that sure. AA for, for losing faith in me like that. And I thought it was implicitly unfair of her to do that, but... Um, on the other hand, she did get me to L.A. Uh, yeah. I did sort of get on the dance floor a, a bit, but I never, the opportunity never came along. And I remember at one point her telling me, Jeffrey, you're a, you're a, you're a, a, a you're a long run. In other words, uh. you aren't who's going to uh, hit it right away but you and but but I believe and then really I guess not so much huh what happened well, to that I speech? mean <laughs> well let's uh, uh, let's jump cut to better days and a door opening um, how how yeah. What's the time frame from that moment to the audition that brought you to the film, uh, the friendship with the late Stuart Gordon and the long collaboration that followed that? How long was it from being dropped by the agent to that audition for Reanimator? I would say about a year. About one year. Not bad um, in Hollywood. I, yeah. I, I moved along, had another agent, agent, um, and the next summer I was doing a play in a very small theater in L.A., a three-man play, and uh, I didn't invite them, but a casting director saw the show and afterwards said, you know, I'm, I knew him. I auditioned for him before, but never got cast. And he said, you know, I know a, um, 
uh, you know, some friends of mine are doing a movie as a role you might be right for. <laughs> sure, right. Well, so that, and, and it turns out that that's what it was. Uh, Reanimator. Wow. Yeah. Uh, if you know anything about it, listen, this is just another audition. And, uh, and you know what I mean? It, it doesn't mean you have the job. So it's just an opportunity. And, and so I went in and I met this bushy-haired, bearded uh, dude, and Stuart <laughs> Gordon, and um, and I read for him, and I, he said, you know, this is based on H.P. Lovecraft, and I bullshitted my way through that. Oh, yeah, okay. But I uh-huh. really had no frame of reference for that, so uh, I got a call back, and uh, uh, went to that, and uh, I was offered the role. As simple as that. Uh, my dilemma, <laughs> my dilemma, was at the same time I was offered to play Romeo. Uh oh. In a stage in in L.A. Um, directed by um, a acting teacher by the name of Milton Kafala. And he was a bit of a guru dude, you know, students were just hanging on his every word kind of guy. And um, I really didn't know him, but I auditioned and I, and he and he wa- he wanted to double cast Romeo and Juliet, and and it was about he, and he offered me, you know, you you we'll want you to play one of the Romeos, and um, and it was at about that point that I got offered Reanimator, so I was literally like, hmm, horror movie or wow. mm-hmm. <clears throat> Romeo, Romeo, um. And um, and I chose to do uh, the movie because why am I in L.A.? I'm in L.A. to try to do some film here. Uh, so that was sort of the determining factor. I was quite uh, torn about which way I should go. But not bad. No, I can... Not bad to have that kind of uh, uh, spectrum of choices. It's not like you want to play this mad scientist or that mad scientist. It was like, you want to play one of the great lovers in, in classical literature or, uh, or a mad scientist and then low budget horror movie. No, and absolutely. I pretty, can, I, that's pretty damn good. I can understand that dilemma. And, um, you chose wisely. Did you did you have a sense? It's funny what we find out later as we become friends with people. Did you have any clue during the audition and callback for Reanimator that of Stewart's background in theater, or did that come quickly later after you were cast? I think that I knew. I think that I knew that uh, Stewart came from theater. Mm-hmm. I knew that he ran a theater called the Organic Theater, which I'd heard. Yeah, something about in the past, but exactly what kind of theater that was, eh, I don't really know. It didn't really 
I wasn't aware that it was pretty avant-garde at times, almost like shock theater. He really had a proclivity for that kind of in-your-face, kind of breaking the boundaries of expectation kind of stuff. I didn't really know that. I just knew that he had run a theater. Uh, it was pretty evident also in that he wanted um, to rehearse. We rehearsed mm. for two weeks every yeah. day, doing scenes somewhere, his place. or it, We would uh, get together long before the shooting started, which I, I have come to realize more and more that that doesn't happen in film. You oh, yeah. Or rehearse or you shoot, which is like the worst uh, way if you really want to <laughs> solve problems. So he was right in knowing out of theater that preparation is everything. Yeah. Solve these problems sure. way before. So you, you walk in and you're, you already know basically what you're going to be. Yeah, them. because Stuart, you know I mean? Stuart's, yeah, because Stuart's made no bones in the past talking about Reanimator. That as a filmmaker, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know direction of looks. He didn't know this. Oh, and he oh, no, was relying on, you know, there's a big yeah. learning curve there. But what he did know was actors and story. And uh, well, here's something yeah, I've never yeah. asked you: <clears throat> um, when you get the script, you get your cast, you got the script. Uh, I've never read the Dennis's. Uh, uh, I've never read Dennis Paoli's script Reanimator. Was it was it on the page as wet and gory? Uh, how and and what was your what's Jeff Combs' reaction to this as it's unfolding? Um, well, I was very you, fortunate. Incredible. Because there, you know, because where I'm going with this is there are horror films and there are horror films, and now here comes right. Stuart Gordon. <laughs> well, and here comes my assessment, which turned out to be flat ass wrong. I mm. looked at the script and I now you have to put this in perspective here. Context is sure, uh, yeah. Context is everything. The original script, which I still have, had a lot more scenes. It was a story about the lovers. And there uh, the yes. Lovers. Yeah. What um, are we going so to do? What are we your, going your fans, to do? Right. Your fans know yeah. this, but this is Barbara what? Crampton and, and Bruce Abbott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Barbara Crampton and Bruce Abbott. And look at the billing. Starring yeah. Bruce Abbott, Barbara Crampton. Yeah. Uh, You know, and then it all goes on down. And then I have sort of like, I think, last card. And Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Combs and Herbert West. I was not viewed at, it was not viewed at that point that like Herbert West was going to be uh, as iconic, thankfully, as he's become. It was... Mm -hmm. It, the, the, and the billing shows that, okay? Uh, yeah, I was a strong supporting role. Yeah. In the initial uh, go. It was only in um, in editing that they 
kind of streamlined and jettisoned a lot of uh, a lot of uh, what are we going to do scenes. Uh, a lot of the yeah, what the Romeo and Juliet. Because the spine I of it, yeah. It. Because the oh yeah, sorry, I'm just <laughs> getting yeah. excited. The, yeah, the spine of it so, is the struggle between the villains. Yeah, that's that's right. And and I, um, I it was so bloody. I never really read anything like that. And <laughs> I was lucky to have I was lucky to have Bruce Abbott. We are we are peers. We didn't know each other, but we were both mm-hmm. West Coast theater actors, and we had a lot of friends in common. That happens a lot with that. Oh, you know so and so? Yeah, no, I went to school and I did a play. Yeah, yeah. And so we were really in harmony, and we were both like, my God, what are we going to do here? Mm. And we, between us, we decided that we would, pardon the pun, inject some humor whenever we could to sort of offset this barrage of blood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, there's no release. There's no relief. We just made that decision between the two of us. So we tried to find timing and things here and there to just sort of break this consistent, you know, assault yeah. of blood. Uh, uh, pointed, if you will. So, yeah. <laughs> so... So it wasn't ever like this is a dark humor horror movie. That was, it was never uh, articulated to me by Stewart as that. I get that based on my 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 experiences with Stewart, um, which always centered around Nevermore, really. Um, and, um, we did have a really great chat after reanimator, the musical I saw at New York. Um, but, and then, and we, you know, we've had wonderful conversations about theater and that kind of thing. But what I'm trying to, what I'm groping for, what I'm trying to say is that it is, it is the story, but those tools, whether it's gore and blood and whatever, it's part of there. These are all colors and part of the tools in telling the story. And so he, I don't think he thinks about them consciously. They just are what are needed for telling this story. Um, well, he's a marvelous craft about story and character and who does what, when, and why. Yeah. Uh, he knows how to tell a good tale. He really is a craftsman that way, Stuart. It's one of his strengths uh, when he's creating a um, script. He's very yeah. hands-on with all of that. I remember years later, Barbara and I were shooting Castle Freak. Which, we let, me, in, let me interject. I, what, I, yeah. what I love about Castle Freak is, see, directors love working with actors over and over. They because they know them, they know where to push, they know their strengths, and they just like them. They like being in their company. And what I love about those two films is how different 
it really does show a wonderful range from you, Jeff. You can't get any mm-hmm. different from West and the father in Castle Freak. I'm sorry to interrupt. But, yeah. yeah thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it's a different headspace, for sure. Um, but we were sitting having dinner or lunch, uh, uh, and Barbara and I were on one side of the table, and we were kind of talking about reanimator a little bit, reminiscing, and said something about the humor and it being funny. And Stuart on the other side of the table went, reanimator's not funny. Huh. And we both kind of looked at each other and at him, and it was like, then why do people tend to laugh at it then at times? And rightfully so. You know, I think what it did is it kind of bespoke in, I think it surprised Stuart that it had dark humor. I think Stuart's initial intent, I can't and won't speak for him, but my instinct is, and my experience is, he thought it was a serious piece. And, and yeah, yeah. And he kind of felt like it uh, got away from him a little bit uh, in terms of. Oh, well, wow, that's not what I, it's kind of like having a child and you go, oh, oh, yeah, this isn't kind of the child that I envisioned, but okay, I love it still, but wow, that didn't turn out what I thought, you know. Um, yeah. So well, the see, that's and the of, thing, I get, I so grasp what you're saying based on that, the, the, and boy, my brain is having a short circuit only because of I saw what he had enormous control over with Reanimator the musical. And you can't tell me that that wasn't played for the dark satire and the outright humor. Also well, trading on what weird. the audience knows with the film. So it's interesting because that's a you're bringing up something really interesting because I saw it on opening night. He invited us, and Bruce and I went together. One yeah. of the more surreal experiences of my life. What? <laughs> and having known that Stuart felt that the animator uh, wasn't funny, and that it should be taken, and it was approached as serious at the time. And then I go and see that musical, and he is doing nothing but making fun of it. Yeah. It's it's nothing but a dark romp of gags. And I, 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 to this day, it's like, but did you just say fuck it and, and, and went for it? And because it's completely different tone. Um, all nuance or motivation yeah. just went out the window, and it just became this. Uh, this I mean, it's dark. It's, in in a strange way, I find it marvelous in and of itself. It's incredibly presentational. I mean, when you saw it, when it o- when it was in L.A. when it opened, I mean, it's right down to the casting. Was George Went involved that early? Yes. Because he he was in a number of productions and a fine actor, 
but already yeah. uh, it's one of those ca- it's a casting where and even though on Cheers the character is fairly played the characters are played straight played norm naturalistically I think there's an expectation that you're going toward comedy I mean just by by his name I'm getting off the subject but the 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 curious thing is is that first film he's working with producer um band uh, uh the production company going to distribute it in theaters and a certain amount of not total control over things the i don't even know whether stewart in post with reanimator how much he was able to communicate or talk to Richard Band about the score, which colors well, it a certain way, heard. gives it a gives it a drive. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, what, well, this is what I understand that soon after shooting the movie Reanimator, Stewart had to was obligated to go back to Chicago to. I either direct a play or oversee the theater in some way. He was needed there. Yeah. And the editing and uh, was sort of left in the hands of uh, the editor, wonderful editor Lee Percy, who went on to do many good things, and mm-hmm. Albert Band, who was uh, Charlie mm-hmm. Band's dad. Old yeah. Hollywood. He was John Houston's assistant for many years. Albert Band directed a lot of B gladiator movies in Italy and Spain. Right. In the late fifties, early sixties. Um he was no slouch, new film. And 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 it was sort of left to them to kind of get the film to a good degree. Um, I'm not sure that he certainly learned over the years, but I I don't think Stewart really knew how to do that. And then over time, yeah, and and, uh, an approach to this material in this other medium on stage as a musical Sure, there is a new collaborator that he's working on the book and the music with, and he's going to work with new actors. He's got ideas. He's in a different element that he loves, which is live theater. But I'm guessing, as I'm having a small revelation here, and boy, I know you do, but I do miss Stewart. And I think over time, seeing the film with audiences, audience feedback, I, I think one changes one's percent. The film stays the same. We change. Yeah. So maybe right. that was the only way he could do a musical of this thing. Um, right. And I think he went whole on. You know, Stuart, whatever decision he makes, it's full. And he went, okay, fine. Yeah. The musical is going to be something uh, robust and, and silly. Um, you know, I remember uh, at the end of the movie and at the end of the play, you know, Herbert is uh, grabbed by the 
large intestine (laughs) and pulled into the smut. You remember that, right? right? Oh, yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of uh, a climactic moment. Oh, my God, what's going to happen to Herbert? Is he dead? Is he alive? He's disappeared. It's kind of dramatic in the film. When we went and saw the musical, you know, Herbert grabs the intestines and then faces the audience, breaks the fourth wall, as we call it. Yeah. And proceeds to use the large intestines to hose the audience. I was... uh, (laughs) Right. And I'm going... Well, I'm going to let me let me interject. Let me let me interject and remind the audience. um, When you saw Reanimator the musical in the theater, you uh, obviously buy a a ticket to a seat, and the first three or four rows um, were the. uh, blood seats, splash, the wet the seats, the splash blood, zone. Splash. And uh, if you knew, if yes, so this is, oh my gosh, this goes back years to Rocky Horror Show and the water guns and the audience. But this is from the stage side, the actors soaking the first few rows. And if you knew it, you came, you just covered it yourself in a piece of plastic. <laughs> To get sprayed with and, you know, in the, the splash thing, zone. The theater loves it, okay? The theater, yeah. the audience just is eating this, this spectacle up. But I'm sitting there going, this is completely not motivated. This is just yeah. a two-dimensional cheap thrill that yeah. undermines the characters. Uh, there's no danger here anymore. Uh, where's the dramatic conflict in this? You know, I don't know where I, I, yes. And I don't know where my brain is going with this, but you know, reanimator the musical was only a few years ago. And I'm wondering in this age we live in where there is, there's nothing, there's no thread to pick up in what I'm about to say, Jeff, but I, I, it just pops into my mind. We're in an age where there is a bizarre audience participation in social media, where fans can demand the Snyder cut of uh, oh. Justice League, and right. then HBO, then uh, they'll put the money into it, and lo and behold, it's delivered. Or so there is this strange. Even though that kind of audience participation goes goes back in the theater a long way, yes, audiences ate that up, and they came expecting to that. And not to jump ahead, because we're going to be talking about Nevermore, there are mixed audiences there that come to see Jeff Combs live. Well, there's an expectation and, a, and an energy there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, if they're coming with an expectation, as long as they're going to come and they're sitting there, I can at least uh, change that expectation. I, I, that, now you're here, and 
whatever and your the expectation. Dance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever your expectation was, we're taking a left turn. It's not right. going to be. This ain't Herbert West. <laughs> There's not going to be, um, <laughs> you know, blood spurting everywhere. And and no um, and no glowing green syringes. No no no. No. Welcome to the land of literature, maybe. Um, what's called? <laughs> um, it's a different vibe, and I don't think that uh, anybody. And, you know, came and saw that show and said, gee whiz, I, darn it, that just didn't, uh, I didn't expect that, but I'm, uh, but at the same time, I'm hopefully made on hope that they're enlightened, but also satisfied and surprised in a, in, in a good way. And, uh, that's all I can ask. Uh, if one thing gets them in the door, um, you know, I sort of liken it to a, um, to a musician, you know, there's a guitarist that I, I like named David Lindley. Mm -hmm. David Lindley was the guitarist for all of Jackson Brown's songs, uh. a slide guitarist running on MT, just rock. Really, uh, you know, soaring, beautiful rock guitarist. Well, I saw that he was playing at a venue near me. And I went, oh, wow, David Lindley. Wow. Okay, man. And I got there, and he's this uh, older gentleman sitting on a stool, not even a chair, mm -hmm. and surrounded by bizarre string instruments from around the world. African string instruments, Indian string, and he proceeds to um, unplug, play these instruments quite well. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't, uh, uh, I wasn't disappointed. Well, maybe a little. I, I I did want to hear a little bit of plug-in shit, but but I was pleasantly surprised at his diversity. In, of interest. Yeah. So you can go, you can get your butt in the seat with an expectation of one thing. That doesn't mean you're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. You might get something better. Uh, so yeah, that's, I know that people came to see Nevermore. There was a faction that came to see because they love Poe. And there was a faction that came to see it because they love Stuart Gordon as a director or they yeah. like, Jeffrey Combs is Herbert West. Sure. Uh, or maybe Jeffrey Combs from Star Trek. Uh, I don't care as long as they come and then it's uh, and then uh, and then it's uh, my time. You know, Jeff, one of the things that I'm curious about at, at this period, I mean, you've got something wonderful that a lot of working actors don't really get. And, you know, all actors have some sort of side hustle at some point in their career to make ends meet. And um, they can work 
a career and uh, be unknown, but pretty quickly after Reanimator, it's the timing of Reanimator is a theatrical release. It's the expansion of VHS and Errol's video and then Blockbuster video. Um, there were sequels to uh, Reanimator. There is Stuart Gordon's career taking off in a direction. You guys are suddenly the horror guys. I'm curious about two things, and we've never talked about this. Um, before we worked together, we actually did meet very casually. Uh, at a convention or two. I'm just curious about, yeah, I remember, um, oh, it's, you know, a group of people, it's after work or, uh, you know, after the show in a bar, and and here's a hi, hello, and oh, there's Jeffrey Combs. Hello, hello, Mr. Combs. (laughs) I don't know. But it was no more than that. And uh, the, um, but, but I'm curious, you know, because, we are, you know, you, we have no, we are chosen. We have no choice. And the genre chooses you with the success and the fandom that grows from Reanimator. I'm just yeah. curious about your perspective um, as that began to develop as a career as an actor, but then your first experiences with conventions and fandom, because you know, from 76 to uh, 75 to 85, they're far and in between, and they're mostly science fiction conventions, and Star Trek is established and growing, and the San Diego Comic-Con is established and growing. And now, you know, uh, let's pretend COVID and pandemic didn't happen. I mean, you can't go to a town without there being a horror convention. Film festivals did the same thing, became ubiquitous, and there was one everywhere. What was your eye-opener what was your entree and experience with that and your what was your first convention as i recall my very first convention was a fangoria convention Mm. in boston Mm. they flew me to boston and as i recall it was in a a hotel very near the Boston Commons. Uh, it was like in the center of Boston. Um, and I was uh, sort of surprised at the turnout and the enthusiasm. It was, you know, when you do film, you do not connect with your audience or how big the house is or, or you, you just don't know the effect you're having. Uh, so there's that. And what I learned, over the years is uh, as time went on, the conventions are less and less in the center of town. Right. They tend to be uh, in in an obscure town or an outskirt town and, and, and not in a particularly like, oh, we can go across the street and eat kind of place because it's driven by the hotels charging too much. The economic. And right, right. So it's not so glamorous. Uh, my, you know, my wife goes, oh, you went to Boston. That must have been nice. Well, <laughs> maybe the first time was kind of historic, uh, but, you know, subsequent ones are like, yeah, but I was kind of in a, uh, I don't know, warehouse district or out by the airport or right. uh, 
not really glamorous. Um, uh, <laughs> One of the strangest uh, ones that I ever, uh, I was ever a guest at, I was, it was in Wisconsin. I can't remember the name of the show. It only lasted a few years. Um, I was in a room with Larry, oh, the soup Nazi. Oh my God, I just blanked on Larry's name. And Lloyd uh-huh. Kaufman was in the room. Uh-huh. And uh, it was in the Cow Palace of the State Fairgrounds. And, the, and it, so it was so far away from everything. The second day, Larry and I watched, I had a little mini DVD player and we watched Hitchcock's Vertigo. There was no traffic. And then wandering around in the building, I discovered that the International Clown College was housed in that building. Um, oh, there you go. The whole thing, the whole thing was bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, fans... And, and and now, you know, fans have had kids and there are generations that have grown up with your films. And um, so that has to be a strange thing. And then there's got to be, I would think, a kind of difference in the energy um, with the so-called horror fans, extremely fierce, extremely loyal in their love and... Um, You've you you have a distinction of playing. I've lost count. What seven, nine different characters in two different Star Trek series, and you've done Star Trek conventions and you've done the the the, the Star Trek cruise thing. Which when we and I I really want us to be talking about Nevermore, and I can't wait to hear what it's yeah. like to perform Nevermore on a boat. But <laughs> um, right. So this is I think a wonderful thing. Uh, that few actors have. Uh, you were sort of chosen by the fantasy horror sci-fi genres and that fandom. And um, um, has that been okay? Oh, uh, of course it has. Listen, yeah. um, every actor with any chops does not want to be categorized. Or they don't want to... They don't want to be categorized, uh, typecast, same thing. Like, oh, you know, I think of, um, I think of very capable actors that uh, prove that they're capable because of a gig on a soap opera. Right. Well, it perpetuates itself. And the next thing you know, they've been doing it for 10 years. And then maybe they're not doing it. And then they go back out into the marketplace and and I don't mean this in a negative way, but there the the stigma that's put on him is oh you are a soap opera actor. Uh, so when we need a soap opera actor, we'll know who to call. Right. And suddenly you've done your job well. You have found a way to uh, blend and maybe even elevate a particular uh, category and you kind of did it so well that I think the human mind, those that want to categorize actors, I'm talking about studios, directors, casting directors. There's so many 
dead. It's right. just best to label. It's just best to label them. And then my job's easier. I don't have to be imaginative about it. So how in the world could a horror, could a, could a soap opera actor even get an audition for something outside of what they're, oh, no, he's not right for it. We know his work. He's just not quite right for this without giving the guy uh, or, or, or woman a chance. Yeah. Um, it, it is, um, it's ever been thus, I suppose. Uh, yeah. But um, it, it, it is there. And, you know, you ran through a, a whole thing ever since Reanimator and it, this trajectory and it all happened. And I'm sitting here going, He's forgetting all of the empty space here. <laughs> yeah. He's forgetting yeah, and- that after <clears throat> Reanimator came out, um, the studios did not approach me. Uh, big agencies did not approach me, which is what you usually think. Oh, man, they, you know, they make a splash and then you know, the managers and the agents come a calling and the next thing you know, they're at ICM or William Morris and they, and and they got the bustle behind them and they're on their way. And, um, not so much for me anyway. Yeah. And Um, uh, I think that's why looked at as a, a bastard child that somehow succeeded in the industry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if anything, and I'd also say this, I, I've got a distinct feeling. It's only a feeling and kind of an observation that most casting directors were women. Mm-hmm. And whether they saw Reanimator or not, they understood it to be uh, quite uh, ghastly and, and, and and perhaps more than a little um, objectifying of women. And therefore, because I'm in it, uh, I must endorse that, if if that's even a legitimate argument, and therefore uh, they make a personal judgment that maybe they don't want me involved in whatever project they're casting. As a as their silent um, rebellion against that gross thing over there having some success. Does that make sense to you? You know, Jeff, it makes absolute sense. Um, Doors did not fly open. And it's only because of of, um, VHS. Uh, and then DVDs, these generations of um, exposure of platforms that allowed subsequent generations to see it and for it to kind of actually, it was was before its time, so it kind of became, it was a blossoming that happened over time as opposed to right out of the gates. And I think that's one uh, I, I remember in my were bad. Half the reviews were pans or reanimated. Mm. Mm-hmm. And no one remembers that. Siskel and Ebert split on it. 
one up, one down. I'm going to assume Ebert liked it. Later, Ebert liked it, and Siskel did not. And us, and then I learned this lesson. Six months later, they had a, they had a. Um, and for those who don't know, they were like TV uh, film critics from from competing papers in Chicago. They all didn't always see eye to eye, but they were film reviewers, legit film reviewers, and, newspaper and elevated the TV. And they had a very popular show. And six CBS, months later, yeah. they did a... Yeah, things that you may have missed in movie theaters that are now on VHS, and Reanimator was one of them, and what do you know? They both just <laughs> loved it. Yeah. And I sat there watching that going, oh... That's strange. Isn't that weird? He changed his mind. He didn't mention that he changed his mind. He just kind of did. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. And, and maybe um, that's why I leapt to asking you about fans and that experience, because, you know, the timing of Reanimator in a lot of ways is perfect in 85 with the, uh, with the technology with the VCRs, uh, the proliferation of mom and pop video stores, the fans right. finding these films, um, that popularity. So that helps. But yeah, the reality of an actor's life is that, well, there was crickets right after that, and it took time um, for the career to gain any kind of momentum. Um, but fans look at it and see the whole string of things. First of all, you know this. Fans think that we actors know everybody. Oh, surely you must know because, and that we think about the work we do all the time when a fan can often know more about something and broadside us with things that we didn't ever know or had forgotten. Uh, Especially true in Star Trek world. You know, when the photon torpedo. Hit the Absolutely. decal on the side of the ship and obliterated the nine. Do you think that that implied that? Uh, yeah, it's like Absolutely. what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even remember what you're talking <laughs> about. Uh, I have recently in the pandemic, you know, I'll sit down and go, "Oh my God, Deep Space Nine is on!" You know, like on icons and heroes channel or something, you know, and I'll, and I'll watch it and I'm, Oh, I'm in there. I, I mean, I know I'm in it by the title. And then I come in right. and I do a scene yeah. and I go, he really don't remember doing mm. that. Yeah. I, ju- I, I, that's me. Uh, I said that stuff, but it's all kind of, um, some of it I kind of will remember, but I I just remember kind of the step around the shooting the scene. I don't remember um, the words or anything like that. It's just kind of it's a strange thing that actors. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a very strange. It's a very strange thing. Um, the piece lives forever, but the work was yeah. either a day or a week or a couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you go, oh. Um, I was thinking yesterday about how many wonderful actors through the span of time from when theater first started, they were famous in their own way. They were revered by their communities. They were honored, respected.
suspected or not, and we don't know anything about them except maybe, maybe a name. Yeah. We don't know yeah. their work, and now it is it, it, it is captured, and um, so this is a strange new kind of um, longevity that uh, actors. As you know, us both being theater actors, last night's performance is it. Yet there's no capturing of it. It's that's the beauty of it. Is it is a moment in time. It's oh, gone. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And maybe that's the and other the, thing that was in the back of my mind. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please, please. No, that's uh, that's that's the end of my dull thought there. <laughs> well, I think the Just, I think the uh, other thing I was groping for about suddenly you find yourself quote unquote the horror actor or you're you know and there are yeah. actors in film in the history of cinema that again were chosen Karloff didn't plan that Cheney wasn't no. but because of no. Phantom and Quasimodo Cushing Lee on and on and on and then your contemporaries uh, Robert with Pride uh, I'm sure did not uh, you know, I I was friends with Gunnar Hansen for the last ten years of his life, and you cannot get more diametrically opposed from the character of Leatherface to Gunnar Hansen. You know, this literal gentle giant who was writing about travel in Maine. I mean, oh, so I'm you know, but that's the thing because you're coming out of theater, and as a theater actor. I mean, look at the choice that you look what you uh, you reminded me of. You told me that um, this is a choice between Romeo or this Herbert West and different actors will dif different approaches. But in the theater, you do have more of a chance to do some range of different things. Well, and, and this has been a quixotic battle. Yeah, I've had this quixotic battle and a lot of actors do. I, I was raised and nurtured and trained for the stage first and foremost and one of the credos is you survive with versatility mm -hmm. you survive with versatility you be in the next production if you can do something else besides the one note okay you right. you, you, you survive that way you'll continue to work and you get to film, and it's this, do that thing you did before, because that's what we right. want. And so you have this battle between, yeah, well, I'm not going to put the lab coat on and the glasses and a needle <laughs> so you can capitalize on what I did before. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. So I've had to do that a lot say yeah no listen you're capitalizing on what i did but you're not allowing me to be capitalized for it you know we love your yeah. work do that thing you do by the way pennies and then you go thank you bye right thank you bye and then like, wow, wow what a jerk man you don't want to work it's like dude you're missing the point here i i'm i I, I'm not a your monkey. Um, I don't know what I don't know when this popped into my head. Maybe when you just described the 
simple, basic, iconic, uh, iconic elements of Herbert West, but it popped into my head that, you know, there is an action figure or have been action figures of that character. Oh, yeah, you. there's a number of there's and, about um, three four that I can think of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, it'd be nice if that was um, bringing regular checks, but that's not how that works. I want to I want to get to Nevermore, but I want to chat for a second about Stuart Stuart Gordon. Um, a good yes. thing, a wonderful thing, whether it's theater or film or television, is um, having a wonderful relationship and uh, working over and over again with people that you like, with people that with. In in this case, we are actors talking about other directors, directors that you trust. Um, yes, on the whole business side of being an actor, it's a good thing to get called from the same director again and again. But, uh, Repeat business is a good thing. It, yeah. Um, and uh, so you've had a couple of directors that you've worked with a few times. And uh, I forgot to tell you that you've worked with Jeremy Caston a few times. A few um, times. Love to. Yeah. I, with I just recently. need to. How's he doing? He's doing well. Lives in uh, rural Maine on a farm. Uh, seems happy. Right. Uh, get out of L.A. and uh, find another lifestyle. Uh, just and is happy. Married kids, and um, he's found some peace and fulfillment out of the neurotic uh, frustrations that um, a city like L.A. Yes. can uh, can bring you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in 1980 or 81, I was playing Fagin in a musical uh, in Oliver, and Jeremy was one of the boys in the chorus. Oh, really? That's when I first met him. Where was he? And Baltimore? <clears throat> yeah, this was in uh, a beautiful little uh, theater, actually in the county, outside of the city. So they had money. Yeah, they I had production money for things. And then jump cut to a couple of years later, uh, I am um, a friend of mine who I is a director who I loved working with, uh, had a Shakespeare company that I was part of, where I did my 12th night, was teaching at the Baltimore School for the Arts and got a job doing, I think, Romeo and Juliet at uh, the Folger down in D.C., and so he called a bunch of his friends and said, I need you guys to substitute and take these classes. So I took an acting class and a, and a Shakespeare class over from Richard and um, Jeremy was in the class. This is the same year, by the way, where Tupac Shakur and Jada Pinkett were high school students. Um, cut wow. two years later and social media catches up with the gap of where do people go after you've met them or worked with them. And I remember Jeremy reaching out and said, you know, Mark, uh, we met when I was in Oliver. And I said, really? <laughs> so uh, small yeah. world. And um, you, you did do a handful of very different genre films with him that are wonderful. Yes, um, I did. It's a lovely fellow. Uh, uh, I mean, we could get into how you know, that all came about, but just filled with positive enthusiasm and energy. Uh, he had a 
linked up with three or four other producers that were young and eager and kind. And uh, that project, the first movie I did with them was Attic Expeditions, and it actually crashed and burned. We made mm-hmm. a deal. I was going to work the last week of the shoot. I even went and visited them while they were shooting other things. Uh, and before my week came along, they called and said, we've run out of money and have to shut down. Oh. And I thought, well, that's done. That's real bad. hard to get the money to finish something like that. And what do you know? Maybe two, three years later, they came back to me and said, we're ready to shoot those scenes. Um, uh, here are the dates. Let's go. If you're game. Yeah. So good for them. There's a bunch yeah, of yeah. long haul to uh, fulfill a dream. And uh, especially in the face of uh, uh, just running out of funds. Uh, Absolutely. Before you reach it's, the uh, Miraculous. The plane doesn't get air after practice. Yeah. You know, usually. So, um, yeah. Well, kudos to them for that perseverance. Anyway, uh, love Jeremy. I want, uh, you like, know, uh, we can. He's a he's, yeah. He's such a great guy. Um, you know the uh, so and obviously in thinking about you know working with someone over and over and I and I, uh, Jeff, you know we could talk about <clears throat> Stuart for um, hours and hours. A long, um, a long time. He's a. Hey, let me I ask know you. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought seriously about writing memoirs? Uh, uh, not not strictly an autobiography, but maybe just a series of essays. You know how I did it, my life, and just have you ever thought about doing anything like that? Uh, I've, I've thought about it just in terms of um, in terms of, of 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 my family, I suppose. You know, oh, I come from yeah. a family, no one, um, I, I'm so, I, I got kind of interested some years ago in genealogy. Where did mm-hmm. I come from? Who are these people that make up where that culminates at the moment with this grain of sand called me? Um, you know, what are, what's the path that brought me to here? Kind of trying to understand lineages so you get i found that you just it's all lost you don't know who these people are you have a birth date a marriage date a death date number of kids where they lived and the rest is who were they would i have liked them would i have not liked them i just wow i got got, what's the story i don't know and it's a miss it's gone and so um no one else in my family pursued this uh, this career. No one, and I grew up with them not quite understanding. Uh, it wasn't as bad as some people. Like maybe you ought to get a degree so you have something to fall back on, son. Kind of thing. My mm. my parents were very hands off. Faith. We have faith in you. It's your life. It's your life. It, your choices are yours, and um, we're not going to discourage you or try to advise you about something that we, we're not really getting. 
right? Yeah. Um, they did live long enough to see me work. Mm-hmm. My mom lived long enough to know that Reanimator came out. Um, I did not encourage her to see it, um, <laughs> but but that I was maybe on my way before she. Uh, I came home from ADR looping, lip syncing various lines for From Beyond mm-hmm. to one of the worst uh, phone messages that I've ever had in my life. Oh, and, man. and yeah. I, I, uh, they, they saw that I was successful in theater and just starting in film. But, you know, I, I, I have thought of it, but at the same time, I think it's so, um, I don't know, back to laziness. And also, I don't really know what wisdom I could, I could impart. There's, um, there's time. It just popped into my head um, because we're just in this conversation scratching the surface on things. There's so many stories. There's so many experiences, and it's all valid. It's all good. Um, you know, and I did cut you off, but before before I jump back to where I, I cut you off, um, there is that other thing about horror, and, and I thought of it again while you were talking about your folks and how they were seeing your career move forward. I mean, I come from a family of teachers and artists, and I got the range mostly from my dad, who's a ceramic artist. You'd be really good as a villain on that show. Why aren't you in soap opera? And these things wouldn't connect with my head at any point. Although he liked the work that he was seeing. Um, but one of the things that you had just said, and it, it, it triggered the thought because um, I'm not sure mom wants to see Reanimator or should. And that is that people who are not, horror genre fans see horror fans understand all the colors of the dark they understand the horror uh, films and stories and things that are on the one end of the spectrum that aren't as bloody and gory and then there is this whole thing that really erupts you know bubbles up in the 70s but really erupts in the 80s where it's over the top gore and the films just keep trying to top each other i think stuart Dennis Paoli and yourself are partly responsible for that, but that's a good thing. And what I'm saying is, is that agents, people outside of fandom, there's this weird nearness. I mean, remember where the horror sections were in the mom and pop stores. They were very close to the porn, porn section, you know, in the back room. It has a weird stigma. And I get that. Yeah. So I, I really understood the comment about, well, agents not, you know, ringing your phone off the hook and, uh, and that. But I, I want to get right back to, you said something, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I knew Stuart a little bit. Uh, and it really was because of Nevermore, the time that we spent on the phone for several months trying to figure out how to get it to Baltimore. And you said right. that you owe him so much. I mean, um, you know, so I, I knew him I, and I do miss him. And I wish that what you and I and Dennis had 
done recently in particular. I mean, uh, on, uh, and I just, uh, I, I, I wish he was around for that. And, you know, there was so much, uh, so I just want to talk about, uh, Stuart a little bit, um, and which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was there an interested poll or the opportunity uh, when Stuart chose the black cat for the Showtime Masters of Horror series? Um, Believe it or so not. I just threw, I just shotgunned a bunch of stuff to you. So It's okay. Believe it or not, Poe came from me. Mm. I was, uh, we're talking, do the math, Jeff, we're talking 16 years ago. I was looking around. Uh, I was actually looking to um, to reference some things that we were talking about just earlier in this talk that uh, mm-hmm. about not getting uh, typecast. And I, I, I love history, and so I got this notion in my head. It was unformed. But I wanted to find a person, a historical figure in history that maybe would be a good fit for me to portray. Sure, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps in a, perhaps in a movie, maybe, maybe a screenplay. Uh, and this is this this is with headwind because I already knew. You know, you, you, there aren't very many historical movies being made. In fact, right. the vast majority of movies that are being made these days by by people with a camera and a, and a, and a laptop, they're all contemporary because right. that's what their budget can afford. It's far more expensive to do, oh, I don't know, Lincoln? Maybe, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, even Spielberg's Lincoln. I mean, it's it no people don't think about this, but it's like this is trebling, quadrupling your budget when you have period. It it just is in order to bring it to life. You know, you can't have your person walking down the street with telephone poles. You can't have them not wear the costume of the. It's just legion in how expensive it is, but I didn't care. I was still sort of just pipe dreaming. And I started reading uh, books about or biographies of uh, famous people. And I resisted Poe. I didn't want, Mm. my whole goal was not anything connected to horror at all. And that's because of the Lovecraft connection and the the overall. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to break away from the stereotype that the categorization that was kind of going on and that every actor has to deal with. How about going absolutely the other way was my thinking. But I came across a, a biography of Poe by Mr. Silverman. I'm sure you know it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh And I started reading it, and very soon their description of Poe was, well, that's how tall I am. Well, that's the color of my eyes. Uh, This guy is so deeply fascinating and and 
diverse. Uh, he just really spoke to me. I, I, I sort of thought this is deep, deep well here. This is so many colors and so much, so many highs and so many lows. Uh, and, and it was just fascinating. And I said to Stuart, um, you know, why hasn't anyone made a movie about Poe? He's yeah. like American Van Gogh. You got Lust for Life with Kirk Douglas. Why isn't there something like that for one of our great American writers? Yeah. And, and, and Stuart, Stuart didn't say anything. He took it in and, and walked away and... Um, and I'm telling you, maybe, maybe a year later, um, he sent me an email with a script attached and said, "We're this. We got greenlit to do um, to do this, uh, and uh, and I'm. I want you to play Paul." And this would have been the black cat that uh, in the, the series that Mick Garris. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I didn't hesitate. Uh, first of all, the script is really, uh, really a, a, a brilliant um, conceit. It takes the story, which is written in first person, of the black cat, but makes Poe the central character, and he's mm. got writer's block, and it's the cat's fault. And that way you can weave in biographical details of his life in with this story of paranoia, obsession. Uh, it is genius. Uh, yeah. It's a deft, wonderful dovetailing. And so it's just beautifully shot and uh, just came out so well. That's one I'm so proud of it. And while we were shooting it, Stewart said, I feel like I'm in the presence of Poe here. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. You should do a one-man show. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, yeah. No, that's okay. I'm the, no, I'm the great resistor to <laughs> climbing high mountains. <laughs> I was like, um, maybe, maybe not. But Stuart just gently for, I'm thinking, a year and a half or so, gently, constantly, whenever I would talk to him, bring this up, plant this, water that seed he planted, mm -hmm. encourage me, think about it. And then one day he called me. We didn't have a script. We didn't have anything. But one day he called and said, I have us a theater. <laughs> I have us a theater. Well, now you better fill it with something. <laughs> yeah, and then I knew that it was really kind of meant to be at that point. We're talking two years maybe after uh, Masters of Horror. I called up Mick Garris, and I said, Mick, um, there's this possibility for us to um, maybe do a one-man show of Poe. Is that costume that they built for me, mm. do you still have that? Does 
Masters of Horror have that in storage somewhere, possibly. To which Mick said, boy, you're lucky. I said, why? He said, we sold all of our wardrobe of all of our shows uh, to a wardrobe department up in Vancouver. Like they would take everything. Right. And it's due to be shipped out next week. I will pull your costume and send it to you. And he did. Mick Garris. (laughs) Well, and at that point, I said, okay, the universe is encouraging this. Okay? Yeah. Because that might have stopped us in our tracks. Because I'm here to tell you, you can't just go into, you know, men's warehouse. Right. And get something like that. You've played Poe yourself. You know this, right? Right. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's hard. But this thing was built for my body, my measurements, and the people that were doing I knew I was in really great hands. I, I have no doubt those people had worked in theater before they had worked in film. They were just meticulous about things. Like yeah, some of the great about- costume designers. It's, and, exactly. Um, it's about clothing and that costume. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's these little happy accidents. And that's, you know, then we started forming the show. What, what do we start with? What do we want to end with? We, we want to do a story. What, what poems fit our narrative that we're kind of working on, our arc? And um, that's where we started. That's how that came about. And you're, you're now working with Stuart for the first time in a very different way. And it's not only just a different way, but it's very specific, a different way in theater in that you've been working with him within the confines and constructs of how movies are made or television. And that means you have, even though Stuart did rehearse and does, did rehearse, but generally it is in the world of entertainment it's always technical. It's the camera's rehearsal. It's the effects rehearsal. Yeah, and you're doing ours. everything. You can, you're making your choices. And, and if the director doesn't say anything, even if the director knows how to talk to an actor, if he doesn't say anything, it's working, just keep moving. So you've worked in this other medium. So not only is it just now that you're working on theater and a play, which again, is not even scripted at this point. It is a question of what would be in this, which means are there uh, snippets of stories, poems? So you're developing something with Stuart. Uh, what, was the, what was the whole process like uh, at the that pro- development uh, stage? Stuart and I getting together and going what do we want to start the show with? Mm-hmm. And I believe it was Stuart who suggested Spirits of the Dead. Yeah. Um, we knew we wanted to do a story. I chose Telltale Heart just mm-hmm. because it spoke to me and also it was one of the first things of Pose when I was in high school. Choose like mm-hmm. seat like a freshman in high school, English class. And it jumped off the page then. 
And so uh, I, I, um, I thought that would be a good centerpiece for the, the reading, quote, reading of the story. Uh, in our play, he actually reads it, but he performs it too, certainly, almost like it's a, uh, you know, a performance. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then um, Stuart had done something about Poe many, many years ago at the Organic. So he had done some reading in the past, and and I remember reading this passage as well in the biography that I read, that there was a, a particular recital that Poe did where it seemed that he was doing the whole thing to a woman in the audience. Mm-hmm. And Stuart hooked onto that as a as a um, as a device where we would be able to so it's just not Poe standing there and talking to people sort of statically but that there's a purpose to it he's wooing someone in mm-hmm. the audience mm-hmm. and so it gave me a other specificity during the show, another layer of motivation for things. Um, Absolutely, and that's we, one of the, oh my gosh, I'm gonna keep biting my tongue. Uh, um, it's one of the, the, the show, for those who have not seen it yet, uh, bear with me, um, the layers, because it could have been a here's Poe and he's giving a lecture and it's 1848. And that is right. one way to communicate to an audience. And then the very fact that it is this specific person, the specific woman with a specific goal that Poe has in mind works on another two levels in that, you know, as actors, there are these wonderful little things, secrets that we have. And it's not in the script in the audience. The director doesn't need to know it, but it's the one thing that we know that, that we want. Now, that secret is revealed in the course of the evening to the audience, which makes it work. But it's not there. But the audience does pick up something's going on here. And, and it until, yes, yes. Once you're out and introduced her, but she's not there. They all look. What's he talking about? Uh, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that I... Uh, it's part of the purpose of the night. And, and so we constructed a whole thing there with that. We also knew that we wanted to, uh, in keeping with uh, every biography and everything that's known about Poe, is that not only was he uh, a gentleman and eloquent and gentle, but uh, could become a raving drunk. Yeah. But he... He just, just a bender. Uh, that he didn't hold his alcohol very long, very well. Uh, either that or yeah. he's secretly drinking more than anybody knows. Who knows? But the point is, is that we wanted the evening to crash and burn. Yeah. We knew that. We knew that at some point it starts out like any other recital and whatever forces come into play uh, the secret bottle has to come out to 
to to to calm his nerves at first and make him brave. Uh, you know, I had a another thought I had is I had an uncle who was an alcoholic, and he was subdued, quiet, mumbling, nondescript for the whole week. And then he was the life of the party Friday night, Saturday, and Saturday. Just a different right. guy. Right. Because that's Frank. And, 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 and you enjoyed him. You enjoyed him uh, then. He was, he was alive. He was charismatic in a strange way. And, and I got to thinking about that arc, that he starts out quite fine. And then when he starts drinking, actually, the audience celebrates it. They love it when he takes the bottle out. Audiences celebrate the bottle. Yeah. Celebrate yeah, it. And then, then it then it just goes on too long. And the, yeah. the joy and effusiveness turns bitter, angry. Uh, spiteful, uh, and that's when the audience goes, "Ooh, whoa! Maybe he should stop." Yeah, and he doesn't. Well, that would be an alcoholic, wouldn't it? Do you remember, Mark? And I'm sure you do. That when um, we performed it for the bicentennial in um, 2010 Baltimore, in Baltimore, at the, yeah, at that town hall meeting there next to his grave that a woman at the Q and a afterward, one of the performances said, I'm a teacher. I've taught Ho for years. How could you do that to him? How how could you you do that to him on stage? He never did that. And I really wanted to get into that one. (laughs) <laughs> I have to say, yeah, yeah. For the listener, um, the and this happened happens after many uh, performances, productions of Nevermore, but um, two performances in Baltimore, and after every show, uh, the, because. It is the place where Poe is buried, and this was uh, actually in January for his birth anniversary, birth date. And it uh, so the performance, uh, Stuart was there, and Dennis Paoli was there. And so after a performance, there a little fifteen minute break. The audience came back, and then there was a Q and A. So you now have imagine um, <clears throat> Jeffrey. Uh, tired and exhausted and exhilarated and a good performance and Stuart beaming and Dennis with his arms wrapped around his knees, everybody sitting on the lip of the stage. I'm moderating and fielding questions from the audience. And there are Poe fans and Jeffrey fans and Stuart fans and on and the energy in the room is so good <laughs> when this question hit. And uh, you're right. I remember it. And Stuart handled it so well. 
And uh, what I knew going into it, and while it was one of those horror moments that is as it's unfolding, it's like in a film, this would be slow motion, motion time with the glass frozen in midair. I'm sitting there thinking, my God, how do I get us as the moderator out of this? And woman, why are you spoiling the evening? All of these thoughts in a nanosecond. Well, and, my, and my the thing is, is that there are, there are people, there are Poe fans who, and there's no other way to put this. This is just their reality. They have whitewashed the hero of what? anything only that good, makes him human. Only the good, right? You know? Yeah. Oh, he did not ever wind up in the gutter. Uh, no. He, he, he never borrowed <laughs> money from people and never paid them back. He, 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 you know, he never did all the bad things. She's literally correct as far as she knew that he that he never drank on stage. How do you know that anyway? But, but, but maybe it's never been like to the point where we take it. But the point is you teach English and you've not heard of dramatic license, right? But you see, yeah, this isn't a literal, uh, theater is not literal. Okay. It's not that never happened. Therefore, but it is a color. It is the, he, Paul wrote a short story called The Imp of the Perverse. The thing that you do that ruins the occasion. There's a story of, of, of him getting maybe a job with the new administration in Washington, D.C. He has a friend who knows the son of the new president. They say, come Poe to Washington, D.C. for some of the inaugural parties. I will introduce you and get you a job where you can work right. part-time, be paid, and you'll be able to continue to do your writing because he was in abject poverty all the time. Poe destroyed that opportunity with his drinking. He got drunk. They had to he, carry him to it. the train station. He, he wrecked it. He, they had to carry him to the train <laughs> station and put him on the train, bombed. So this, Absolutely. This is, See, this, is, this is that thing. Um, again, I'm going to throw this out to the listener. This is something that Stuart, you mentioned, Stuart mentioned this all the time in, in, in pointing, uh, shining a light on <clears throat> the phrase, the imp of the perverse, which, by the way, is the title of a Poe story. And basically, it is this horrible self-induced shooting in the foot syndrome, uh, just having no control of wrecking. The world is going, and everything's going so well, and you've done something to, to screw it up. Yes. And this is something that I have always loved about Nevermore from the first time I saw it, is that it is this neatest hat trick. I keep talking about how things work on different levels, and it you know, at its basest, anybody else, any other actor, director, combination of people, okay, it's Poe on stage reenacting a lecture and he's reciting poems. Fine. But this is on so many great levels. And it is, <laughs> you are absolutely right. This is what drama is. This is what theater is. And there 
is yes, see that most, structure yeah, of it's most, a lecture. But to be able to deftly weave the arc of ah, it's almost I mean, when it's a lecture, you're already breaking the so-called fourth wall because you're talking to the audience. But by showing this arc be based on all of these other things of him drinking and getting drunk, of watching that in real time, it's as if you've revealed the curtain. It's a very neat hat trick that the well, I think that the, the, the best, show does. I think the I think the best turn of the show is after he has utterly ruined the evening. You Crashed, think literally, yeah. Uh, how in the world can this be redeemed here? This is awful. How's this going to to end? I I feel pity and uh, and, and and a certain kind of revulsion at Poe, which is exactly how people that in his contemporaries felt of him. They they did admire him, but they also were like, "Oh, that guy, right?" So, yeah. how do you back from that? And I think that's the best turn of Dennis's is that yeah. Poe is now uh, shocked back into sobriety from how how he's crashed and burned here, yeah. uh, and, and 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 he's lost his everything out the door, literally. And well, now what? And the absolute naked, humble, heartbreaking revealing of why he's acting this way. Yeah. What's, what's happened to him recently? Uh, this has all been bravado because really I am a uh, a broken man. Yeah. And just on that raw honesty endears the audience and, 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 and it is a redemption. At the end you you feel pain for him, but you also in a weird way even appreciate him more for all of the what he yeah, had to overcome. I wanna And that's the Yeah. I want to talk about Dennis, but before I do, I want to uh, interject a couple of things that come to mind as I as I listen and I, and I think about the play. Uh, the the very fact of Helen being in the audience, who I apologize, spoiler alert, is not played by an actor. She doesn't exist. No, in it's an obsessionary device. But there's an interesting thing, and I don't think I've ever shared this with you. The experience of the audience, once they realize that Ellen, uh, Helen is in the audience with them, it, they change. Mm -hmm. I have felt an audience feel, is, and, they've, and I've seen sometimes they look. But it's not like this, but the closest thing I can think, it's like when you're in watching a magic act and suddenly they're going to randomly pick people from the audience and how most people kind of shrink. There is this weird frisson that happens when they realize, and I'm not talking about the big dramatic moment. I'm talking about leading up to that even. And then you're absolutely right. When he takes 
this is another thing I have felt from sitting in the audience. I'm sure Stuart has already told you these things. Dennis has seen the show with live audiences. When you when Poe takes that first secret quiet nip from the uh, flask, right? And you mentioned it, and I had forgotten this. The the sort of go man go that kind of starts there, you know, with the audience. This is that weird perversity I think that people have. They want to see this go off the rails. They want him to have his freedom. They want to see how, and you're absolutely right, because the moment it goes too far and is awkward, the moment it's uncomfortable, they suddenly, I think the audience has a moment that Poe is about to in the show, where they get a little bit sober, and they say, oh, wow, boy, you went too far. This is very uncomfortable. And they these are real feelings that I have felt. I have felt an audience feel. There is nothing like that dance between the actor and a live audience. You don't get that with anything. Maybe a musician can, of course. A stand-up comedian can. They can feel that kind of thing. And these are the things that these multiple levels do in your one. You're my favorite poet, Jeff. I had to slip that in now. Uh, you know, it's a marvelous performance. I, I want to get right to and ask you about um, Dennis's contribution, Dennis Paoli. You, you've been you're working on material. You have a shape that the show is going into, and then what did Dennis do? Right. Well, we were very lucky to have Dennis. First of all, before I get into Dennis, I have to tell you, I yeah. said to Stuart, man, this is so much to learn. I mean, are you kidding? We've, okay, so we picked these poems. Uh, uh, how am I going to learn all of this stuff? And yeah. uh, never forget, Stuart said, learn a poem a week. Hmm. Just memorize a poem. Just stick with the first poem and, and memorize it. Get that one. And then move on to the next one. Just one foot in front of the other. And if it's a longer poem, take two weeks, take three weeks. But mm-hmm. just methodically go through. And what do you know? Uh, you take walks with the dog. And you're the crazy person because you're talking to yourself. <laughs> and, uh-huh. And you can't help but make a gesture and people look at you like, what's that guy doing? But, but that's how I, that's how I did that. So what we needed after we had Poe's writings, they're, they're set, they're set in, in print, you know, that's, that's done. We know that, that we have to get the connected tissue. And Dennis is a, he's retired now, but he was a, a gothic literature professor at Hunter College. Yeah. In New York City. This was his gig year in and year out. And so he just went on research mode and he started digging into Poe's letters, Poe's yeah. essays, Poe's book reviews for material that would dovetail in between that poem 
talking about that poem? What did Poe say about that poem? When did he write it? What did he have to say about it? How that dovetails into the next, the next big piece. So I learned all of the poems. And as I was doing that, uh, Dennis would periodically send me these tendrils, these sinews that I would then stick in between mm. uh, pieces. And they were so wonderfully done. And, and you also learned like, well, maybe we don't need that much of that, but you know, we could, but there's always, it's always better to have more than less. So, you know, we get it and, tear it down and get it to where uh, it flows. And yeah. um, that is, who else could do that? Who else yeah. could do that? Yeah. And, uh, so it's wonderful. So, so the play is what, 95, easily 90, 95% tough. Yeah. What I say in between, and of course the writings, it's, it, it, it is Poe. It's what he said. These are what he thought, his opinions, uh, what he found outrageous, what he loved, what he, his biography, I was, you know, in his words. And Which so all of it, um, all of it resonates with an audience today. Um, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah. You, 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 you know, uh, he had such a hard life. I mean, yeah. and being orphaned when you're not even three years old, uh, uh, a lost soul. I mean, in, and the very fact that he is, and I believe this is true, the first American to try to make a living as a writer who was not already moneyed from other business or other endeavors or inheritance mm -hmm. like contemporaries oh, so, so many writers problems. that came before. Yeah, there's that. There's absolutely mm -hmm. that. And there's also the other burden that he had was, you know, we're talking the 1830s, 1840s. The literary elite in America was Bostonian. Would you agree with it that was, at this point? Absolutely. It was all Northern. It was all Yankee. Yeah. Yankee way up North. Well, not even New York way up there. They were the elite cream, the right. literati. And here he is down there in Richmond, Virginia. They look down their nose at yeah. him. And this really, really bothered him. They, they sort of thought nothing of any literary value could possibly come out of the South. They are just not on our level. It was so snobby about it. And uh, he really rebelled against that. Uh, and he, uh, as they looked to Europe, he looked to, well, what is American? Uh, this was important to him. So he's fighting battles on all sides. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know. Yeah, and he yeah. was a scathing um, literary critic, too. He would read prociferously other people's writings, and uh, what did they call him, the Tomahawk? I mean, he was ruthless. The, the Tomahawk Man. Yeah, the Tomahawk Man, because he would... Uh, 
stuff. The reference, the, the illusion being that he would scalp writers because if they were bad. Right. The, yeah. only, the only good thing about this uh, new book by Mr. So-and-so is the binding. <laughs> you know, and you go, oh, oh boy. That's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, brutal. Um, but and that was also, you know that was often yeah yeah he just fiercely he had fierce and very clear opinions about literature and he saw a lot of tripe that's what he saw a lot of pretentious lofty nonsense puffery most Absolutely. of the time I mean, and, we could, and and it was a little click that everybody supported everybody else it's almost like the popular kids at school that are that are uh validating each other and you on the outside are going what a bunch yeah. of dicks yeah it's um 1840s version of i don't know who he would be would it be uh Ali Sheedy's character in Breakfast Club. <laughs> you know, I, oh, I the, the smart was, uh, one who's quiet that has a lot to say and has a little gossip. He had spooky, a lot to but, prove. He had a chip on his shoulder. He was an outsider, always the outsider. Always yeah. the outsider. A poem he writes, I do it in the show alone. It is, I'm not like everybody else. They see something pretty. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Uh, um, he just was, you know, he was just uh, very unique and a genius. And a genius. You can't write that, pro- that prolifically and that uniquely. Um, poetry, uh, Short stories, uh, uh, you just can't do it. You can't do it unless you're... And, and people, and, you know... Yeah. People just ahead. don't know. I mean, his his day job so often throughout his adult life was writing for magazines, writing for publications, and editing newspapers and magazines. Um, right. So there is a prolific amount of daily, weekly writing that people don't about know this? about. And how about this? Oh, okay, I got the thing all laid out, but we have open space. Oh, well, I guess I better write a short story. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and insert that. I mean, it's, these things were done really quickly, and they are standing the test of time. He just, it's like a musician uh, coming in, and uh, you got, you got 12 bars. What would you do? This. See you later. Mm-hmm. Session's over. And it's an iconic guitar solo forever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was Poe. Uh, he, he was just that good. Just rip it off. No time to really uh, rewrites or anything like that. Don't have the time. And it, it's just telltale heart to me. Yeah, the more I read it, the more I appreciate the dynamics, the counterpoints, the highs, lows, raise anticipation, relax, raise it some more, relax. It is masterful. Masterful. It, 
It to absolutely say, to is. say nothing of the psychological, almost modern examination of uh, it's a, it's it's a um, it's a monologue of a psychotic. It's a monologue of a madman. Yeah, but it's but done in such yeah. a way that it's uh, chilling and entertaining all at the same time. Um, the average Joe doesn't know this. I mean, you even mentioned that, you know, the first time you were exposed to the Telltale Heart, it was in high school. And a lot of people will say, yep, first poem I ever was The Raven, it was high school, this kind of thing. The Corman films, your group, your Stuart and, and, and Dennis, I mean, you, you've, there's a pit in the pendulum, so there are adaptations into movies. Poe's best-selling book in his lifetime now it is the raven that made him a star while he was alive right. he did have that it got pirated right. and, and, and uh, there was no copyright but his best-selling book was the conchologist's first book uh which is basically a a, a, a book about um seashells seashells i mean how bizarre is that that that's what people Okay, I'm interested in that. You know, as much as they ate up the horror stuff, even then, you know, they liked the the horror stories, even though some publishers were, well, maybe you're going a little too far with this one. There, there's so a weird mainstream science based. Although I think some of the stuff that he wrote was the utter. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I did read something where it was like, well, you know. He lifted that from here, and he lifted it. It was something that he did do for money, like fill in all right. the drawings with, uh, with, with the scientific stuff. So, so it may have been more mainstream. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That way. You know, you speak of the Raven when he was so, like, uh, kind of not liked because of his um, reviews of other people's work that when he first published The Raven, he did it under a pseudonym. He did it under a ah. pseudonym. And, and it got rave reviews. And then he said, hi, it's me. <laughs> hi, I did that. Because he kind of knew that if he just went out there with his name on it, no, the, the, their their vitriol towards him lambasting their works or their friends' works would have not given him the the praise. Out of the game. very crafty. Let the work speak for itself before the. Well, brand overshadows it because it's me and so that was very clever <laughs> yeah it's me hi it is because i yeah. firmly believe that from the beginning of his writing career when he was in his 20s he wanted his name out he wanted to be known there is this weird mystery uh, when he's in the army, in between the army and West Point, where he publishes in Boston, uh, 
uh, Tamerlane and Other Poems by a Bostonian. And I am one of these people that tends to believe he was evading creditors from the University of Virginia. Um, because everything else about him leading up to that and after that is trying to get make a name for himself. Um, well, yeah. But, so, but that's a whole money. kettle of fish. That's a whole. Well, he what do you took money from the West Point cadets. He, they, they, he used to make these little poems up about all the right. officers at West Point, the and they, everybody got a kick out. And so he said, right. listen, I'm going to publish those. Everybody, you know, contribute to my publishing costs. And they did. And then he proceeded to, to just use that money to, 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 to put out Publish other cards hard. and not. <laughs> other, you, you yeah. hey. <laughs> the other thing about West yeah, Point because, that's fascinating. But, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, yeah, is, what they were expecting, what they're expecting is Lieutenant Jones has no sense. He sits on the, you know, you know right. where Limerick's from. Right. But anyway, yeah, well, right. I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say, he went to West Point at a time, and in you know, the sweep of history, both people, cadets that he went to school with, by the time, um, uh, by the time the War of 1812 and then the Civil War, he's long, he's passed, dead, he's dead at that point. But he must have gone to school with all of those generals and majors and colonels. Yeah. That in the sweep of history were leading men in the battle years later. You ever think about that? Yeah. I mean, he must have, he owned a lot and, of them. And he, and he was successful. He was good at his job as long as he could hang with that. And, you know, they weren't, the country wasn't at war at that time. We were in between things. And, you know, but you touched on this earlier, too. Everybody else going to the University of Virginia, which was brand spanking new when Poe went there. Yeah. Jefferson right. was still alive, but I don't think they ever met. He's surrounded by and I'm sorry for the breakfast club analogy again, but he was surrounded by the Richies. They had the money to go to, whether it was University of Virginia and then West Point. You know, they didn't, right. they weren't broke begging money from their foster father, which is a whole you know, conversation other there. Yeah. Listen, and um, put it to this that he, you know, kind of, was probably bored with his classes. It wasn't speaking to him. And he, I think he got some uh, betting uh, debts. Uh, he accrued some yeah. of those as well. So it wasn't exactly like a the golden-haired boy here. He was uh, a bit of a wild child, I think. No, definitely, definitely. So anyway, we're all hoping for health, happiness. We want to stay creative and alive. We're muscling through. I think there's end, light at the end of the tunnel with COVID and the pandemic. What would you like to see happen with Nevermore moving forward? You know me and anything I can do with it. I want to see you do it on stage for audiences. Um, I'll aid in a bet in any way I can for you to do it. If you want to, I, I would just Love for that to happen, but um, what would you like to see moving forward with Nevermore? 
Well, a couple of thoughts on that. It's been a uh, been a struggle for a long time trying to get this thing captured uh, in some sort of you know used to say filmed, but we can't anymore right. because it's not accurate. Um, right. But part of me is always. I'd like to have it done that, but part of me always just wonders if the piece actually has the same impact in that medium. I just don't know. Wouldn't know until it happens. You know, film is an awfully visual, and this piece is verbal from start to finish. Um, Doing live performances again, uh, I'm older. I'm older. What does and that I mean? Worry. You're warier. You're you're not tired. You've got the energy. I'm, you don't look your age. I, I, well, it's, well, well, it's not. That's not a known thing. I know that just doing one performance takes an an, an immense amount of um, of prep lonely prep that no one it's kind of like training for a fight yeah. uh, a lot of a lot of prep time a lot that no one seems to kind of oh yeah just come and bring it and do it, it you know like next week it's like whoa 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 whoa, <laughs> whoa. you know no it's, it, it uh, is it's a, enormously lonely and hard work big, yeah yeah, it's a big lift, and I, I'm just not as young as I used to be. I, uh, maybe it's just me worrying, but it's like, do I, do I have the stamina? Uh, uh, it's not one of those shows that I can turn around and do a matinee and then an evening performance, and then, right. and then two more tomorrow on the weekend. It, it, it is, uh, takes its toll. And when you're younger, but as you get older, you begin to go, well, can I, can I pull this off? Yeah. Um, and then I get in the costume and then I get all the stuff squared away and I step out there and I'm good in many ways. It's just my, um, it's just my own. Maybe it's that kind of wariness that that sees to it that I uh, prepare. You know, you, this is not a something you, I can just uh, just. Uh, you don't throw it in the suitcase. Get on, yeah, and then you know, bang, you do it. It's it's a production no, it, it, and it, it's a process, and you as a performer and a human being. It does take preparation, and it is physically and emotionally exhausting. It's it's difficult. And the, and the so, other aspect of it is that um, I, I'm sort of a one band, one man, literally one band show here. In that um, you've helped me out in the past, but sometimes people will ask me to bring it someplace, and it's like they don't really understand. You know, I don't have a prop person. I don't have a wardrobe yeah. person. Um, I don't have anybody that 
precedes me and talks to the lighting guy and the sound guy and gets... I have no roadies. Okay, right. You don't have... For almost most of these productions, you don't have a small production team. That you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have anybody going, your guitar is tuned. It's out on stage. I've put new strings on it. It's beautifully tuned. All you have right. to do is strap it on and go. No. And I, work. I, I, right. I have to do all of the necessary prep stuff. It's, it's And I... It exhausts me to think about it. It exhausts me to talk to places and try to describe to them the kind of period chair I want. Even when I send them a picture, they'll go, well, this, and it looks like something from someone's dining room set from 48, you know, 1948, as opposed to, that's not going to do it, right? Uh, Try again. So this it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Where because for people, because for fans who don't know, you have done this in beautiful, well-appointed theaters with good technical support and a yeah. nice, just yeah. enough, just enough production team. And I've helped out a couple of times there. You've done it. Yeah in a movie theater auditorium. You've done it on a cruise hell, ship. That had, you've done it in a, well, hotel, have, a ballroom thing. I've done uh, cruise ship, but I will say those are fine theaters in those cruise ships uh, the, with great technical staff. So that, that was the least of it. Well, that, but, you that, know, but it just it, sounds, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're often doing it in places where the people who are, financing and inviting the show and and putting the show up, you know, often are not theater people and they don't have the facility and that makes it, I mean, Baltimore was rough. You traded the, I was about to say charm. You, you traded the fact that Poe's body was laying outside of the building at Westminster hall, but Westminster hall is an ex-church that is rented for weddings now. So it's a big cavernous room without the technical support. With the Westminster Hall, I was surprised when we went in there that there were no lights. There were no, there was no lighting. All we had were these uh, lamps, like, yeah. like, like spot lamps that, that we could, uh, direct towards the stage, but there were no dimmers. There was no extra lights on stands. It was like, oh my God, I thought I was going to walk into kind of a theater here. This is just basically as bare bones and inadequate as you can get. (laughs) It was... um, I don't want to... Yeah, Mark, I was able to place my hand on Poe's grave yeah. before I before I went to places. Uh, I, I I can't tell you how meaningful it was to to have have had that experience. Such an honor. Well I'm uh, I'm I'm grateful that it happened and uh uh you know for the listener and I'm not going to name names, although I'll 
boy, do I want to. But, you know, the thing is, is that you guys wanted to do it in Baltimore in 2009, which was Edgar Poe's 200th. That was the bicentennial. And it got handed to me. I was doing a lot of events producing for the Poe House and Museum in Baltimore. To make a long story short, it got handed to me. And that's where my relationship with Stuart really started because we spoke once a week. I went, did a location scout, told him what we had, told him what kind of budget the city of Baltimore was going to spend on this, this, that, and the other, where we're going to put you all up, all this stuff. I'm coordinating. I'm I'm sending him pictures over the internet or over the phone, whatever it was. Uh, I was, I, that was the first time I ever had the task of, this is the furniture we used at the Steve Allen Theater in L.A. And on and on right. and on. And, um, yeah, so it didn't happen for various reasons. And I even spoke to Stuart for a month. I was pitching other theaters uh, here in town that I knew I knew were had the technical support from top to bottom, including a house staff and everything else. No, no, we, and this was, I mean, not lost on me. We want to do it where Poe is. And so what rolled around was the January was the birthday. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that a certain amount of money and a certain no, amount of that's attention. Not your, that's not your doing. I would have just thought that a facility, uh, a, a, a place like that would yeah, have absolutely. had. You, there's only so much you can do. You're not running that facility. I would just thought somebody would have said, you know, we need some lights. You know, yeah, we, it's um... <laughs> we need to hire somebody to hang some lights. And I need to tell. Sort of... I need to tell your fans, and I need to tell the listeners this because if anything bonded me to, I keep referring to you guys as Team Nevermore, whether I'm talking to you or Dennis okay. or or. A little late, Stuart, back in the day, but not so recently, not so long ago. But the thing that, you know, being a theater person, being a film person, being the thing that bonded, the thing that touched my heart so much was not the first meal we ever had. You were asking, where can we get some sushi and just... Yeah, because that's a good talking. meal before it goes. Sushi. It's per, it's <laughs> it's uh, and it's protein. It gives me, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it was the fact yes. that yeah. Stuart and Dennis ran sound and lights for Baltimore. <laughs> that was just the thing that just shot right into my heart. And I said, you know, uh, the movie Freaks, one of us, one of It's like, I got that. Uh, you know, you just roll up your sleeves. It isn't, and you, you know, it, it, and you have, you have two tin cans with light bulbs in it and we're, we're playing a CD, you know, but Stuart and Dennis jumped in and, you know, you guys did the show. It was great. It well, was that, great. you know, but, but, but here, the great Stuart Gordon directed a lot of movies. Um, uh, when we when we opened with Nevermore uh, and had a run, every night that that there was a show, Stuart came 
and ran the lights and sound. That's right. For, That's Steve Allen. for a That's very right. long time. Stuart Gordon did that. Yeah. He, most directors, you know, they'll go, okay, good. You got that. You got, I'll see you later. I did my part. Bye. I'll come check on the show in a week or so. Not Stuart. He was, he was, he was there. Yeah. Running, running cues. So that was nothing new to me. And, and to get, let, let me, how, how do you think I felt? that Stuart felt <laughs> so strongly and was so supportive about this piece that he would, um, you know, night after night, give up his evenings to, to come and run. You know, there aren't that many cues in the show. It's not like it's, right. uh, but I mean, it got it's to not the never more than musical yet. <laughs> no. Oh, so that gives me I, a, I might call Dennis after we hang up and talk about that idea. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Nevermore with so an exclamation anyway, point. <laughs> this has been a great talk, and I, I, um, I urge people. I hope people will listen to the audible recording. But it is, um, it is a good glimpse of the show. But there's a lot of. Um, it's it's not like watching it, but it is no pretty good. Um, no, it, it is, is a pretty it good is indeed the spirit of the show. It's its yeah. own animal. It's I'm very proud that I that it happened as a document. Um I mean, it is uh, a spoken piece that comes through wonderfully. But I will just wrap this up on my end by saying, you know, Jeff, I I want to see you a, a a visual document. Let's call it a film, let's call it a video. I'd like to see something really high-end done. And if you get the bug, if you get an opportunity, I, I cheer you on. I, I'd like to see you perform the show a few more times. Um, well, that's it. I would like to... I, I, that's just my uh, wish, because audiences love it. Yeah. They, I have so many wonderful memories, and I have to tell you that you uh, coming to me with this uh, this forgotten recording of um, of the Nevermore performance in Boston with this idea of putting it out in audio form um, was really great to collaborate with you to get that done in the midst of COVID when nothing else was kind of going on for anybody. You yeah. kind of... Um, inspired me and in, and we had a lovely um working relationship to get this thing put together because it's not exactly it wasn't just uh you know it's done and it took some a lot of work and a lot of effort yeah, by yeah. a number of people to get this thing into uh the shape that it's in and uh that's a testament to you mark you're the one who uh who, who put this forth. So bravo. Well, thank you. And uh, all I can say is that when I first saw Nevermore, I loved it. And so I'm very glad, very proud to have some small part of its history. Um, and more. And on a, on a humorous it. note, and on a humorous note, when I did do perform it in Baltimore, 
I did get to meet maybe at least a half a dozen um, Poe performers. Im- uh, impersonators, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Including one guy that was about six, five. Uh, it's like, yeah, I do a Poe. So it's like, I'm looking up at, at him like, a, like Abdul Kareem Jabbar. So I really... He was not only, he it, was not only six, five, he was blonde. He was... Uh, it was... It's like maybe Lincoln would be a better choice for you. I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah, funny. It just speaks the enthusiasm that people have for Poe's work, and they just want to emulate it. And I get that completely. But yeah. I, I, I'm in Baltimore, and they're all there. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. There was an event, and maybe this was in the back of my mind. Um, we did an event once, and it, I called it Night of a Hundred Pose. And it, the <laughs> centerpiece, it was around Halloween, of course, and his death anniversary is October 9th. So that whole time of year. And I think there was a costume yeah. contest. And, uh, okay. yeah, imagine them all. I can't. Front row. I can't. <laughs> and I can't. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. All the best to you. And uh, this is a wonderful talk. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All Thank right. you, Jeff. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. As always, we appreciate our listeners on the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Thanks to Jeff Combs, uh, Jeffrey Combs, for spending some time to chat with us. And just a reminder, uh, if you haven't heard it yet, and I hope that you do, Nevermore, an evening with Edgar Allan Poe, is available from Redfield Arts Audio worldwide on Audible and other great audio platforms. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Mark Redfield. From Redfield Arts Audio, available now worldwide on Audible. Jeffrey Combs, Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe. Written by Dennis Paoli. Directed by Stuart Gordon. Recorded before a live audience. You are here this evening, no doubt, to hear yours truly recite the most popular poem ever written upon these shores. For many years, my, uh, my, my stories, my tales, they're more popular than my poetry. Magazines and readership just demanded. Oh, new tale, every issue. Oh, God, do you hear it? Louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. 